Zechariah chapter 2, beginning at verse 13. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your um, your great love, for your great glory, your majesty, that you allow us to come now into your presence through your word. Lord God, send forth your Holy Spirit, Lord God, into each one of us to hear and to speak forth your words, that they would um, come into us, that they would transform us by the renewing of our minds. We know that your power is on display here. Um, Bring it forth for your glory, um, for your good, and for the good of your people. And all this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Ken Yu, and I am privileged to serve as one of the elders here at LEFC. Um, On June 23rd, 2018, 12 boys from the Wild Boars soccer team and their coach entered Tham Luang Cave in Thailand's northmost province. Within hours, water from early monsoon rains flooded the cave, trapping all 13 inside. Despite efforts of the Thai government, police, Thai Navy SEALs, and volunteers from all over the world, rescue efforts were hampered um, by ongoing rain, treacherous cave passages, rapid currents within the flooded cave and um, the skill of the rescuers. Finally, eight days after they were trapped, two elite cave rescue divers found all 13 alive, four kilometers deep in the cave. Alive, yes, but how could they survive 
a three-hour, four-kilometer dive so dangerous it had already claimed the life of a Thai seal. Some of the boys were non-swimmers and all were non-divers. This is dramatized in an excellent movie called 13 Lives. So as not to be a complete spoiler, they are rescued by being rendered completely inert and carried to the mouth of the cave, saved alive from certain death. The story of trapped boys being rescued from certain death by passive deliverance to a new life underscores many of the truths that we'll see in our text today. God's word from Zechariah declares that a holy God silences the accuser and pardons guilty sinners to live lives of obedience, stewardship, and communion. Before we get into our text, just a few um, introductory comments. Last week, Eric taught that the resettlers to Judah had become occupied in things not evil in and of themselves, a nice home, good job, clothing, food, and drink, but they're all created things that cannot provide solace. They substituted a life of self-preservation for a life of obedience. They had talked themselves into a lifestyle of just not right now. God kindly caused all of their efforts to come to little, and even more lovingly sent the prophet Haggai to explain to them what was happening and why. Haggai made clear that the only solace that could satisfy them and could satisfy us is God's stirring, sanctifying, and strengthening presence in the midst of his people. About two months after Haggai's initial prophecy, Zechariah began his prophetic ministry, calling the exiles to repentance, as recorded in Zechariah 1, 1 through 6. And then five months to the day after the returned exiles resumed their temple restoration, Zechariah received eight visions in a single night. Now these are vivid images dripping with allusions to Scripture so that with relatively few words, a scene comes alive in our minds as illuminated by the Holy Spirit. These visions are in a style known as apocalyptic prophecy. And God often spoke to his people this way to give them strong encouragement when they were particularly downtrodden. Some examples of this are prophecies from Ezekiel and Daniel to discouraged exiles in Babylon as Jerusalem fell and the temple was destroyed. Or the Apostle John's apocalyptic revelation to believers in Asia Minor persecuted to near extinction. And to these beleaguered exiles, no longer under their own king, harassed by surrounding nations, God sends Zechariah. He's a Jewish man of the priestly line whose name means Yahweh remembers. His call to the ministry was in his early 30s in the fall of the year 520 B.C. Ezra records Haggai and Zechariah both supported and prospered the temple restoration through their prophetic work. And since we're only going to focus on just one of Zechariah's visions, we're going to outline just, just quickly the entire book. Um, this initial word that we just heard in chapter 1, then the eight visions, and we're going to focus on the fourth vision, and then um, God's encouragement that they will be going from fasts to feasts, 
with the return of the king and the coming day of the Lord. Now, it's from this fourth vision that our text is drawn today. And common to the apocalyptic genre, these night visions um, have a rich and deeply encouraging message, but can be hard to understand, especially for modern readers. And perhaps this is why one commentator has said, Zechariah is the longest and most obscure of any of the minor prophets and the most difficult of any Old Testament book to interpret. One should approach it with prayer and humility, acknowledging one's own limitations. At the same time, many have observed Zechariah to be amongst the most Christ-focused book in the Old Testament. And so with that in mind, let's turn back to our text. We're going to consider our text in three sections, starting in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 13. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. From this, we see a holy God silences the accuser of the guilty. And 2.13 commands all flesh to be silent before the Lord, for he has roused himself. Something like the creatures in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia say of his character, the great lion representing Christ, Aslan is on the move. But there's more here than that. In fact, noticing who's acting and who's not acting in this vision sheds much light, um, not only in this vision, but also on God's way of salvation. This vision has much to teach us about God's rescue from the accusers and our condemning thoughts, God's forgiveness, and how God makes sinners righteous. Notice the first phrase, be silent, all flesh, before the Lord. What is God's first call to us? Nothing. Be silent. I'm reminded of about a teaching about what to do if confronted with a breach delivery. The baby is coming out bottom or feet first. It's a riskier delivery, but pulling or trying to help the delivery too early only increases the risk for complications. So the teaching is, don't just do something, stand there. And stand there is exactly what we see Joshua the high priest doing as the scene from the divine courtroom set either in the heavens or in the unfinished temple unfolds in chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. Now Joshua is known to us from Ezra and Haggai, and his lineage is through his father Jehozadak to the great high priest Zadok and ultimately to Aaron, Moses' brother and Israel's first high priest. Scripture references to um, Joshua are positive, and Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 48:11, commends the sons of Zadok who kept my charge, who did not go astray when the people of Israel went astray as the Levites did. Who does God, Joshua stand before in this courtroom? The angel of the Lord. 
sometimes a manifestation of God himself, and other times merely an angel who speaks to or is spoken to by God. In this case, I believe, and most commentators agree, that this is the pre-incarnate Christ. But there's someone else in this court, standing at Joshua's right hand. In Hebrew, the accuser, translated in, by most English Bibles as Satan, standing to accuse him. Now this sets up what could be a dramatic life-or-death showdown between good and evil. Bringing to mind courtroom scenes in movies like A Few Good Men with Tom Cruise grilling Jack Nicholson or To Kill a Mockingbird. Well, as, but as gripping as those scenes can be, that is just not what happens here. What actually happens is a complete surprise. We read in verse 2, And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Before the accuser is recorded as having said a single word, he's rebuked by the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ, invoking the name of Yahweh. And just like that, the accuser is silenced. All his accusations are ruled out of order. On what basis does he stop Satan from accusing Satan, uh, Joshua? One who stood as a representative of all the faithful in Judah and all faithful believers since. Verse 2 says, The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you on the basis of Yahweh's sovereign choice. Not Jerusalem's, not Joshua's, not our actions or merit. Yahweh rebukes Satan by his choice. He also asks the assembly, is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Indicating Joshua representing all Israel is like a stick placed in the fire. Normally sticks burn up in fires, reduce to dusty ash. But the angel indicates Yahweh has removed this burning stick of a people from the fiery judgment of exile. And as he has chosen them from out of Babylon, no one now can separate them from his covenantal love. This is so essential for us to remember when Satan or our conscience accuses us. Satan's accusations for anyone united to God by faith in Christ are inadmissible, meaning they aren't even allowed to be considered as evidence. Now notice what Joshua did to get such a great defense attorney. Nothing. But stand before the pre-incarnate Christ without one plea. And as we'll see shortly, he had no plea. Like him, as representative of all mankind, neither do we. As Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What is our plea? When the accuser or our condemning thoughts attack us, an old hymn that we still sing sums it up beautifully. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest, whose name is love, who ever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. 
I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. Now, as if the atmosphere in the divine courtroom could get any worse for Joshua, verse 3 drops a bombshell. Now, Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. The word translated as filthy in Hebrew means being fouled with excrement or vomit, a picture of sin. Joshua's robes are not just work-worn, needing a little touch-up. They're excrement-laden garments. Like us, he is guilty in the most extreme and unacceptable ways. And yet not for some dramatic moral failing. Israel has sinned in awful ways and was exiled. And as we heard from Haggai last week and even in the opening of Zechariah, is still sinning. But Joshua has been described as faithful. This soiling is the sinfulness of sin that Joshua and all since Adam and Eve have been guilty and this is where things stand. A truly holy and righteous judge before whom Joshua and in him as our representative, we stand. A fierce and malignant fiend standing at our right hand ready to accuse us. And Joshua representing each, each of us clothed in filthy garments, guilty as charged. But as we've already discussed, Yahweh, the all-powerful creator, who dwells in unapproachable light and cannot even look upon evil, rebukes Satan rather than Joshua. The manifestation of Yahweh providing, um, presiding in the royal courtroom says objection, and on a point of order, um, the accuser is no longer heard from. Yahweh chose Jerusalem. The basis of their acceptance is his sovereign election. And that's true for us as well. Jesus called and chose us too, even before the foundation of the world. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. How often do we need the gospel? Is it just at conversion? Is it mainly for the salvation of unbelievers? No. The testimony of scripture is that we live and move and have our being in God. The gospel is the power of God in Romans 1, uh, 16. And then what does that mean for us practically? Always keep in view God's holiness, majesty, and glory as revealed in his word. Our knowledge of him will continue to increase through our whole life as Christians. But as you behold his goodness, the perfection of his love and, the, and righteousness, you will also be more and more aware of the sinfulness of your sin, the depth of the depravity that dwells in your flesh, and how undeserving you are of his grace. And all too often, if you're anything like me, 
That is where we can stop. Then we're tempted to hide our sin from others, blame others for our sin, isolate from others, believe in the lies of the accuser, that we are too sinful, too far gone, that we're damaged goods. No one would love us if they really knew who we were, what we've done, how we think, especially a holy God. And that is how I can think. It's very natural for me. But in our passage today, in verses 1 through 3, we see this very thing happening. But it's God's sovereign choice that makes all Satan's accusing words and our condemning thoughts out of order. His word stills the accuser's voice. So far, God is alone in his acting and moving and speaking. Let's see what happens next as we read in verse 4. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. In this section, we see a holy God cleanses and makes righteous the guilty. In verse 4, we might imagine Joshua to be seeking to perform his priestly duties before the Lord, but due to his sinful nature and choices, he stands defiled and unclean. Like Joshua, we too are guilty without hope to cleanse ourselves. The angel of the Lord has the incredible authority to command those before him to remove Joshua's excrement-laden garments. In verse 4, he says, remove the filthy garments from him. The Hebrew gives the sense of removal of guilt with the relief of forgiveness. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Notice, righteousness is not infused slowly into Joshua over time. It is placed immediately on him as a garment. And this picture is how God saves us. God removes the stains of our sin completely. God then gives us perfect righteousness as a gift at salvation. In theological terms, God imputes righteousness to us. It's an entirely an action of God. We're completely passive as it pertains to righteousness. What does this mean for us? Let me ask you, did Joshua do anything to have his iniquity taken away or to be given pure robes? No. For Joshua, no for us. I'm not sure I buy UFOs, but I do believe in alien righteousness. The point is that Christ is the source and the identity of our righteousness. And if we had any doubts about the identity of the angel, they must be evaporated by now. As we heard at the beginning, what can wash away my sin? What can make me whole again? 
nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is such a clear indication that the saving work of Christ was the only hope for Old Testament saints, just as it is for New Testament saints. I heard a question in a sermon recently, how many sins were taken away by Old Testament sacrifices? This passage implies, and Hebrews 10.4 explicitly answers, none. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And in Hebrews 9.11-12, to 12, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. We might equally ask, just how, many, um, how much righteousness do we receive in Christ and how many of our sins did he take away? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And in Colossians 2.13 and 14, And you who were dead in your trespasses, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, nailing it to the cross. In verse 5, Zechariah breaks the silence of all flesh, asking that a clean turban be placed on Joshua. Now, commentators differ in what Zechariah was seeking here, could it be something like a headpiece or, uh, as ordained by God in the institution of the priesthood in, in Exodus? Or maybe some kind of a crown? But the important thing to notice is that in this scene we have the prophet Zechariah, the priest Joshua, and an aspect of kingship represented by the turban, all present pointing forward to the Messiah. Like the Thai boys who were just living their lives but found themselves trapped in a flooded cave, we find ourselves trapped by our sin without hope apart from rescue. Their rescue could only be received by completely trusting their rescuers. Our rescue can only be received by completely trusting our rescuer. In the case of salvation, this trust or faith is a gift from God. God is far above the elite but fallible divers. In fact, he created the divers, the cave, us, and everything else. And he became one like us, but without sin. And for our salvation, he willingly went into the cave. Only he didn't get rescued. The rescuer died for the sins of the ones needing rescue. But the cave could not contain him, and on the third day, he burst forth from it alive. If you have not placed your complete trust in him to save you from eternal death, 
Would you please ask him today to rescue you? He longs to answer your prayers. And that brings us to the last section, beginning at verse 6. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. And this last section shows a holy God sets free the guilty to live lives of obedience, stewardship, and communion. In verses 6 and 7, the angel of the Lord gives Joshua a solemn charge to obey. First notice the order. Like Abraham, who believed and then was counted righteous, and Israel, who was saved from bondage to Egypt and then received the law, Joshua, as a representative for his people, is saved from his sin and then called to walk in Yahweh's ways and to keep his charge. Very important that we keep that order in our minds. We are saved by the gift of faith to obedience. We're never saved due to our obedience. In fact, Isaiah describes our righteous acts if done for the purpose of saving ourselves, similarly to Joshua's filthy robes as a polluted garment. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Second, in 2.13, silence was commanded of all flesh before the Lord as he moved on the earth. Do you get the ecstatic wonder that this same Yahweh, through the pre-incarnate Christ, is now calling Joshua and in him us to move and to do something in his kingdom? To walk in his ways and to keep his charge? It's like being the youngest boy on the wild boar soccer team that we talked about at the beginning, who the coach turns to during a big game to say, you're going in. Like him, we're invited, even charged, to go on to the real field of God's activity in the world. And third, the word translated solemnly assured is a Hebrew word rich with meaning. It does mean to charge, but it also means to call on as a witness and to sustain or help. So the Lord is calling us to be a witness of what just happened in our lives when we were rescued from certain death. And he promises us to, sustain, he promises to sustain us as we do that. 
this deep and intimate communion with God is also picked up at the end of verse 7, where God entrusts the faithful to steward all his affairs and, and have, as one commentator termed it, unusually direct communication with the divine counsel. What the Lord offers through this gift of obedience is a privilege to enjoy fellowship with him as a trusted steward over his house, which is very encouraging to this barely hanging on community and to us. In verses 8 through 10, we can go back to that. Thank you. Um, The Lord is adding to this immediate promise of blessing with an eye-popping prophecy that makes possible everything that has preceded it. He uses the word look or behold three times and declares the Lord of hosts twice. God is confirming this is big. Joshua and his friends themselves are a sign. The fact that they have survived exile and returned to Jerusalem as God promised is a sign that he will also bring his servant, the branch, as prophesied by Jeremiah. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. And in Jeremiah 23, 5 to 6, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Now, the meaning of the initial part of verse 9, a stone set before Joshua with seven eyes engraved with an an inscription, is hard to understand. It could refer to a building stone, a gemstone, or maybe be a reference to God's oversight or empowering spirit. But the main idea is that God is the one who will ensure that the uh, Judeans uh, will complete the temple restoration and he will bring his righteous branch, a greater temple, and the remission uh, for the remission of sins in the future, which is how verse 9 concludes. I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. The word used for remove here is different than the word for remove in, um, used in Leviticus uh, for the removal of sin from sacrifice, animal sacrifices. This word signifies a day when guilt is removed entirely, permanently, what the author says in Hebrews. And every priest stands daily at his sacrifice, at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Finally, in, um, in verse 10, 
In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. And this, again, uh, evokes a picture of, of, of the ultimate good. Like, for example, at the height of King Solomon's reign or in the coming of the kingdom of God. In 1 Kings 4.25, And Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. And in Micah 4.1, 3 and 4, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit, every man, under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken." One commentator mentions a gospel bonus to this peace with God and, um, and prosperity. It's not only experienced, but it's shared. And that's really beautiful, isn't it? So as you consider God's call to you as a believer, is it ought to, I should, or I get to? If it's I ought to or should, daily return to the gospel that all flesh stands condemned before a holy God without hope but for a rescue that we can only receive by faith in Christ who alone stills the voice of the accuser cleanses us and places on us his pure blood wash robes is it I want to but can't I'm not good enough He's too far above me. Then again, return to the gospel to know who silences the accuser and our own condemning thoughts. It's not us. Our Savior rules them out of order because he chose us, saves us, and makes us righteous. Have you forgotten that you were chosen to bear fruit? Remember his solemn assurance that includes a charge to be a witness of your amazing rescue from a certain eternal death that comes with sustenance all during the way and unusual direct communication with the divine counsel. As we read in John, when Jesus spoke to the disciples, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full and you did not choose me but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name he may give it to you four years after being rescued one of the boys was asked what it's been like he said at first he didn't know how to act with all the media attention. But now, he said he's gotten used to it. And now, I know how I'm supposed to behave. 
Their coach now runs a soccer academy. When asked about how the boys were doing since their rescue, he said that some want to be professional soccer players and play at a higher level. Some want to study to complete their education. Now, he said, they're all doing their duties. They all recognize that they've been rescued from certain death and understand the mere fact that they were rescued at such a cost means they have a calling on their life. Now let me ask you a question. As a believer, wouldn't you agree that you've been rescued from certain death? How great a price was paid to provide your rescue? Today, I can testify on the basis of God's word that the enemy's taunts have been silenced. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, from Romans 8.1. In fact, every condemning thought and accusation by the enemy has been taken on Christ himself, washed by his blood, and is now not only not admissible, Every single condemning thought becomes an occasion for even greater praise to the glorious sufficiency of his work on the cross. On what basis does our acceptance rest? Is it on me and my filthy performance? Heaven forbid, no, but on Christ's perfect performance. And whose charge are we to listen to and follow? not our condemning consciences, our unstable fallen feelings, or the world's siren call, but to the voice of our master, his charge, his call to obey and to be a steward um, of all his house and to enjoy sweet communion with him and his people, always extending hospitality to our neighbor. Let's pray. Lord God, Your word is powerful. For you to speak is to act. And so these words that we have heard today, they are true. They will come to pass. Lord God, there are many um, um, voices in our head, outside us in this world. And yet, Lord God, you say that you prepare your people so that my sheep hear my voice. That is very good news. Lord God, would you encourage each one of your sheep today to know that you are with them, that God, the Lord um, um, Almighty, this one who um, silences all the earth, you say, come unto me and I will give you rest. Come into my counsel um, and you promise to sustain us all the way that we let, let us not be bullied um, by the accuser who now has to stand across the street as we walk with our Father. Um, no one can separate us from your love. Encourage your saints, Lord God, for your glory and for their good. In Jesus' name, amen.